The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, this is Lawfare intern Christiana Wayne with a podcast from the Lawfare Archives for June 27th, 2021. This week, we learned that four Saudi operatives involved in the 2018 murder of Saudi dissident and Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi received training from a private security company in the United States. This news is just one more sign of the United States' complicated relationship with its longstanding ally Saudi Arabia and its Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who is widely believed to have ordered Khashoggi's assassination. For today's episode from the archives, I chose to go back to March 2020 for a discussion about Mohammed bin Salman with New York Times Beirut chief Ben Hubbard, who wrote a book on the Crown Prince titled MBS. He talked to Jacob Schultz about his rise to power, his impact on Saudi life, and the United States' response to Khashoggi's murder. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 31st, 2020. Saudi Arabia continues to be a mainstay of newspaper headlines, whether it be for its oil price war with Russia or for news about Turkish indictments in connection with the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But making sense of Saudi Arabia's de facto leader, Mohammed bin Salman, known widely as MBS, can be a difficult proposition. He's made some social reforms, lifting the ban on women driving and taking power away from Saudi Arabia's infamous religious police. But he has absolutely no interest in political reform, and he has a propensity to take impulsive and remarkably violent action, both in the foreign policy space and toward perceived enemies within Saudi Arabia and beyond. Ben Hubbard, Beirut bureau chief for the New York Times, provides an account of the young prince's rise and his early years in power in Saudi Arabia. I talked with Hubbard about MBS's rise to power, his influence on domestic life in Saudi Arabia, his relationship to Jared Kushner and to the Trump administration, and about the White House response to Khashoggi's murder. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 528, Ben Hubbard on MBS. So I actually want to start in the same place that you start the book, which is with two events that happened in the fall of 2017 that, for the most part, they take place in the same hotel. And on the one hand, there's MBS's so-called Davos in the desert. And on the other hand, there's this roundup of prominent Saudis. Talk a bit about both of these and what they, what you feel like they represent about Mohammed bin Salman's dual instincts. Yeah, I mean, this was a really great point to kind of start the book because we really see these two tendencies in his personality that that I think drove him throughout his rise really come into fruition and really become very clear for people. The first is he he hosts this investment conference called the Future Investment Initiative, and this thing is sort of vaulted in its ambition. He invites business people, heads of state, um, investors, billionaires, millionaires from all over the world to come to Riyadh, and he basically goes out of his way to convince them listen, we, we know that you guys have preconceptions about Saudi Arabia. You may think it's kind of a strange place. You may think that we're stuck in the past and that we follow this austere form of Islam. You're wrong. We're going new places. We're going to do amazing new things. We want to shake up the kingdom and do all, you know, he, he gives this very dramatic declaration about how 
We don't want to have anything to do with extremism. We're going to crush extremism today. He gets a standing ovation. He announces kind of the, the headline projects that he announces are these three mega cities that he plans to build in Saudi Arabia. One is an entertainment city that's going to have amusement parks and movie theaters and things like that. Then he wants to develop some islands in the Red Sea into kind of a fancy eco resort. And then the, the sort of capstone is this thing called Neom, which is this massive sprawling city that he wants to build in the far northwest of the country. It's kind of in this isolated, somewhat barren area on the Red Sea. And he says they want to spend $500 billion on it. They want to make it this sort of hub for innovation, for technology, for business. They want to have it run on solar energy. They want to have robots do all the servicing. And I mean, it's just incredible, incredible ambition for what this guy wants to do. And, you know, I think a lot of people are pretty impressed. I mean, definitely, you know, a lot of people were skeptical that some of these things were going to come about. But I think there was also a lot of enthusiasm. People were pretty used to, you know, a certain kind of Saudi Arabia. And I think it became clear to people who attended the conference that this was going to be a very different kind of Saudi Arabia that this uh, young prince wanted to develop. And then so everybody goes home and, you know, people are sort of thinking, wow, do I want to put my money here? Do I want to get it? Do I want to invest in this place? What do we think about this guy? Is he for real? And then November 2017, a few weeks after the conference ends, you have officials from the royal court and from the secret police suddenly round up hundreds of the kingdom's richest and most powerful people. And the way this worked is that people started getting phone calls and they would get a call and say, oh, the king would like to see you. Or they would get a call that said, oh, the crown prince would like to see you. People would show up. They would be relieved of their cell phones. If they had guards, their guards would be dismissed. Their personal belongings would be taken as if, as if they were going into a prison. And then they were taken to the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton, which is a very, very fancy hotel. And they were checked into rooms, told to leave the doors open, and basically kept there. And then, you know, royal court officials eventually would come around for, quote-unquote, negotiations. The government billed this as a massive crackdown on corruption, basically saying, you know, the kingdom has long had a problem with corruption. We're going to end it. We're going to get to the bottom to it. The people who are locked in the Ritz are people who are accused of corruption, and we're going to recuperate any ill-gotten gains. And so they have these quote-unquote negotiations with these people. And in the process, there's a huge amount of coercion, uh, including some physical violence against some of the detainees. And, you know, they wrap it up in a few months and government announces that they had, you know, recuperated about $106 billion from uh, these people who'd been locked in the hotel. So, you know, if the first the investment conference had really been a sign that you know, MBS is hugely ambitious and he wants to do things differently and he wants the world to come to Saudi Arabia and be excited about Saudi Arabia. The message of the Ritz was very much, I'm in charge. Nobody else stands above me. And even the capital that was once considered private capital is going to come to my service. I'm going to marshal it for the things that I want to do in Saudi Arabia. And I might do that in ways that don't necessarily respect the rule of law and that might even imply, employ violence. Right. And so before we get into more the details of what MBS does as de facto ruler, I want to zoom way out for a second. And so Saudi Arabia is it's a monarchy controlled by a huge single family, but it's famously opaque. I think you describe the inner workings of the family as sort of a black box. How does the hierarchy, the royal hierarchy work in Saudi Arabia? And what are the various roles that MBS occupied in his quick ascension? Well, so in 2000, beginning in 2015, King Abdullah, the, the, the previous monarch, passes away and, and Salman, who is MBS's father, becomes king. Nobody's really paying attention to MBS at this point, but it's the first time that many of us heard his name. And this, this includes journalists, including myself, who had been reporting on Saudi Arabia. It also includes diplomats, you know, people in intelligence services who are sort of charged with researching the royal family and trying to identify young princes who are on the way up and who could become, you know, movers and shakers in various ways. And many of them, MBS never really came across their radar because he'd never really done anything all that significant. His background, he didn't have sort of a shining resume that would, you know, point him out as being somebody who could, you know, likely rise to great power in the kingdom. But we start hearing his name. I think the first job that he got, if I remember correctly, well, he was put in charge of the royal court. So he sort of becomes the gatekeeper for his father, the king. Uh, he was made the defense minister, put in charge of the military, which, you know, that seemed okay because his father had been the defense minister for a while. And so it seemed like he was following in that way. And then very soon he launches a new, you know, military intervention in Yemen, making it very clear that he was going to use the Saudi military in a way that previous leaders had not used it. 
He's put in charge of the board that oversees Saudi Aramco, the Saudi oil monopoly. So basically giving him oversight of the, the kingdom's economic crown jewel. He later, you know, they sort of restructure the government and they create these two super committees, one that's in charge of economic development. He's put in charge of that. There's another that's in charge of security affairs. And sometime later, he will put, be put in charge of that as well. I mean, the guy just ends up with tremendous number of jobs that, that really gradually put the main levers of power in Saudi Arabia into his hands. Yeah. And, and so the big one that attracted the attention of Western observers, maybe not at the time, but at least later down the road, is the, the war in Yemen. Talk a bit about what his role in initiating and managing Saudi participation in that war. And what do the what is the Saudi role in the Yemeni civil war? Well, I think the thing, you know, the, the, the one thing that's often overlooked in the West is that the Saudis did not start the war. I mean, originally this was a Yemeni civil war. I, mean, I, don't, I won't go too far into the details, but basically you had, you know, after the Arab Spring, you had a basically political chaos in the country. You had a huge process to try to put the place together and move on after the dictator was toppled. There's a sort of somewhat scrappy rebel group known as the Houthis who are based in the northern part of the country along the Saudi border. They were unhappy with the share of power that they got under this new agreement. And so they basically rose up, you know, with their arms and came down, stormed into the capital, took over the capital. And they basically seize a huge chunk of the country. I mean, not a huge land mass of the country, but, but a significant part of the country because it includes the capital city and some other population centers. This makes the Saudis very nervous because... You know, they've known the Houthis for a long time. They've been invested in the Yemeni government, which basically collapses and, you know, everybody flees abroad and ends up some of them in the south of the country. Some of them flee to Saudi Arabia. The Houthis make it pretty clear that they are, in terms of their alignment in the region, that they stand with the Iranians. They open up direct flights to Tehran back and forth, which makes the Saudis very nervous. And as time goes on, they're going to use a lot of belligerent rhetoric against Saudi Arabia. And they're eventually going to start launching missiles over the border into Saudi Arabia. So, from the Saudi perspective, I think it's it does make sense why they felt the need to intervene in this situation. But I think that the the criticisms that are that are leveraged against the Saudi against the Saudis have to do with the nature of that intervention. You basically have you know the Saudis for decades and decades have spent huge amounts of money on military hardware, predominantly from the United States, but also from the United Kingdom and other countries. And they buy really expensive kit. They buy the fanciest fighter jets they can get. They get bombs, guidance kits, you know, all sorts of things. And the the understanding had always been basically that the Saudis were never going to use these, that this was sort of shopping that the Saudis did as a way to underline their relationship with the United States. Uh, but they were never really going to do anything with it. Well, MBS, you know, becomes defense minister and says, well, what do you mean we're not going to do? We have all these fancy weapons. Let's put them to use. And so, you know, you have Saudi pilots suddenly doing sorties over Yemen, dropping bombs and and it becomes very clear quite quickly that they don't they're not very good at this they don't they've never fought a war before certainly not on this scale and it starts going bad very quickly they you know declare the entire you know homeland of the houthis the entire province that they're from a military zone which people consider a potential for war crime because you know it's also full of civilians who just happen to live there they over time bomb a lot of civilian areas they bomb bomb civilian infrastructure they hit a few weddings they hit one very prominent funeral and kill a bunch of people. And so it becomes very clear that even if, you know, even if you can understand the reason that Saudi Arabia felt the need to get involved in the Yemen war, there's lots of criticisms to be raised about the way that they prosecuted that war. Right. And so one of the other things that I found interesting in the book is, so Mohammed bin Salman's father has lots and lots of sons and MBS is far from the oldest son. What are sort of the reasons why King Salman has such an attachment toward MBS? I know you mentioned that MBS, unlike some of his siblings and like the other royals, he's a true Saudi. He grew up in Saudi Arabia, and that's sort of a source of pride between father and son. But what are the other reasons? Yeah, there's a huge difference when you look at sort of so so MBS is he's a, he's the first son of one of the later wives. King Salman has five sons from his first wife, or he had two, three, two of them have passed away. But, you know, a number of these first sons have incredible, incredibly impressive resumes. One has a PhD from Oxford. Another was the first Arab and the first Muslim astronaut, flew on the space shuttle Discovery. 
Um, you know, these, these are people who ran media companies, who founded investment companies. They studied at foreign universities. Many of them spent a lot of time in the United States and the United Kingdom, you know, had very close relationships with some of Saudi's Western allies. And But when it comes time for, you know, when, when Salman becomes king and it comes time to choose the son who is going to sort of be his closest assistant at first and then later become the crown prince, he goes for MBS. And we don't, you know, we can't sort of look inside of his head. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, he's an absolute monarch and it's not like he's ever going to be held accountable for his decisions or, you know, journalists are not going to sort of sit him down for an interview and have him explain his decision. But, you know, the more I reported this, it became very clear that he just had a very, very close relationship with, with Mohammed bin Salman. Many of his older sons were sort of traveling the world and doing their various things. MBS stuck very close to home. He never studied at a foreign university never spent significant time abroad. Um, and so while his father was running the capital Riyadh, which was his main job, you know, before becoming king, MBS was right there with him. And he basically shadowed his father, saw how he worked, got to know the kingdom through his father's eyes. And his father d developed a tremendous amount of trust in him. And so when it came time to choose, you know, the one of his sons who would follow in his footsteps, he chose Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, and, and so once MBS sort of ascends to de facto ruler status, one of the things that you note is that his foreign policy priorities are, are very, very different from the Saudi leaders that preceded him. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's 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 a bit the priorities, and it's also just the style. I mean, the Saudis, historically, they tended to work very quietly. They were very comfortable doing sort of backroom diplomacy and a lot of checkbook diplomacy. They would sort of meet people quietly. They would have their allies in different countries. They would bankroll them, whether they were politicians, whether they were journalists, whether they were sort of other people who were involved in politics. In the end. But they worked very quietly. MBS comes in and it's very clear he wants to have a much more hands-on approach to how Saudi Arabia engages with the region. And we see this in a number of ways. I mean, we, we see it first and foremost in the intervention in Yemen. I mean, he was not going to rely on diplomacy to try to figure out how to, you know, get the Houthis out of the capital of Yemen. He was going to, you know, send the military and bomb them. And that's what he did. We see this much later when it comes to Qatar. You know, do, you know we have the blockade of Qatar in 2017. You know, there had been diplomacy back and forth and Saudi Arabia and some of its other allies in the Gulf had, they'd had previous kind of dust-ups with Qatar and, you know, he basically decided to take it to the max. We, you know, no more of these quiet talks. We're going to boycott them and we're going to use all of our media assets to tell everybody that we accuse them of supporting terrorism and doing a bunch of other nasty things. And, you know, he really took it to the max and treated them in a very different way than previous Saudi rulers would have. I mean, you know, we also see it in the caper of what happened with Saad Hariri. You know, he was, you know, unhappy with the way that politics in Lebanon was looking and unhappy with the way that the Saudis' historic ally in the Lebanese political system had been doing things. And so instead of, you know, trying to work quietly to find a way to, to adjust things, he summons him to Riyadh and forces him to uh, announce his resignation. So it became quite clear that, you know, this was not the, the sort of quiet dealings, quiet backroom and checkbook diplomacy that we've grown used to from the Saudis was was not going to be the way that MBS was going to do things going forward. So talk a little, you, you just alluded to it, talk a little bit more about what what exactly happened to Saad Hari, who was the, he's the prime minister of Lebanon. What happened there? He was the prime minister of Lebanon at the time, yeah. This was simultaneous with the Ritz. It actually happened the same day as the Ritz. But um, just to give people a little, a little bit of background, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon is, you know, unlike, you know, Lebanon is a particularly difficult and complicated country in the Middle East just because you have no single group that is a majority. You know, we have a minority of Christians, a minority of Sunnis, a minority of Shia, and a minority of a number of other groups. And so it's the reason Lebanon has never had a dictator and the reason that sort of Lebanese politics are so complicated. Anyway, the Saudis had always looked out for their interests in Lebanon, or at least more recently, by basically working through Hariri's family. They were very, very close to his father, Rafiq Hariri, who was the prime minister after the Civil War. He was then assassinated in 2005. And so then the, you know, carrying on this relationship fell to Saad Hariri. And so he took over and became prime minister. And, you know, and I think, you know, basically what happened is MBS in, you know, 2017, when this happened, looked at. Lebanon is an investment and sort of wondered, what have we gotten from this? And um, basically looked at Lebanon and said, you know, we put a bunch of money here. We've invested in Saad Hariri. We've invested in his political party and his media organizations. And, 
what have we got? And we don't really seem to have a lot of influence. Hezbollah, which is this Iranian-backed militia and political party, is still the strongest force in the country. They have a military force that's bigger than the Le- much bigger than the Lebanese military. And Saad, who's supposed to be our guy, is in a power-sharing government with them. And so, you know, so I think, again, you know, we can understand why he would have been frustrated with what the Saudis had been able to do in Lebanon. But the solution that, you know, he and his aides come up with is just pretty crazy. I mean, he basically summons, you know, summons uh, Hariri to, to Riyadh. They, you know, take him to a house. They put a suit on him. They hand him a piece of paper with a statement that he didn't write. They put a TV camera on him and they make him read it and uh, basically force him to announce his resignation. And, um, you know, as I was reporting this out, I mean, I talked to a number of Lebanese officials who were involved in the, you know, involved in the situation afterwards, a number of foreign officials and diplomats who were trying to figure out, you know, how do we sort of, how do we end this bizarre situation? And everybody was baffled. And they, you know, they just said, you know, it seemed like the Saudis expected that if they did this, there would be some kind of an uprising among the Sunnis in Lebanon and that that would cause a fight with the Shiites in Lebanon and that would bog down Hezbollah. And there was some talk about replacing Saad with one of his older brothers, who's another, you know, well-known businessman in the region. But that didn't work because the family didn't. I mean, just, but again, all these things were, you know, if you had gotten together a number of Lebanon experts and said, hey, what do you think? Do you think this is going to work? They would have all said, absolutely not. You know, that's just not the way that Lebanon works. And at the end, you know, you had even a lot of Hariri's political foes in Lebanon standing up for him and saying, you know, this is too much. You know, we may not agree with the guy politically, but you can't just kidnap him and force him from office. And so, you know, there was just kind of pressure from all around to get him back. And a few weeks later, he got on a plane, flew to France made a few other stops and then ended up back in Beirut as kind of a hero and and rescinded his resignation shortly after. So that's MBS on the foreign front, but domestically, talk a little bit about the sort of atmospheric change induced by MBS in Saudi Arabia. What was it like to be in Saudi Arabia before MBS? And then what's it What's it like now? You find yourself in the book at a Harley-Davidson rally and you know there are a number of other examples you mentioned, American dance concerts, wrestling events, and stuff like that. Yeah, again, there's there's just a very strong duality here that's hard to really sum up because I think people tend to either want to see MBS as all bad or all good. So let me let me talk about both of them. Um, it was very clear that MBS is, I mean, he's very much a son of the next generation. I mean, he's not one of the elderly monarchs. He's somebody who grew up using Facebook, playing video games, reading magazines and you know comic books american and japanese comic books and this was the world that he wanted to live in he didn't want to live in this hidebound kingdom with these very traditional strict rules about this and that and and he knew that other young saudis like him were kind of going crazy and so he wants to loosen up the social codes and i think it's you know and i think that he's made tremendous progress on this and there's many reasons to think that this is going to be you know that this is going to stick and so you know, what does he do? One of the earliest things he does is he takes the power away from the religious police to arrest people. You had this this group of religious police who were basically the on-the-ground enforcers of Saudi Arabia's very strict interpretation of Islam, and they would patrol public places and make sure that women were properly covered and make sure that men and women who are not related were not socializing with each other. And, you know, if they ever got reports about people drinking, they would break into their homes and you know, arrest them and things like that. And, you know, Saudis who kind of wanted to be left alone used to really hate these people. And one day we wake up and there's a, you know, royal announcement saying that they no longer have the right to arrest people. He just defanged them right away. And, you know, then, you know, they start the this entertainment drive. He basically says, you know, we're losing all this money because Saudis who have money don't want to be here. So when they have vacation, they get out of town. You know, they drive across the bridge to Bahrain where they can go to a movie theater and they can have a beer they go to Dubai, the people have more fun, you know, more money. They go to Geneva, they go to Paris, they go to London. And he basically realized this is a huge drain on our economy and we need to find a way to keep some of this money at home. So they start opening movie theaters and they really turbocharge this entire entertainment drive. And so now you've got, you know, there's just all kinds of events. It's almost hard to keep up with them now, but you've got monster truck rallies and professional wrestling tournaments and you know, dance contests. They had a, you know, outdoor electronic music festival not too long ago. And and this stuff is happening all the time. And these are things that you just would have never imagined happening in Saudi Arabia before he came onto the scene. 
you know, you also have sort of changes with women. They've made it very clear that, you know, they've loosened up a lot of the restrictions on what women can wear in public places. They've loosened the restrictions on the ability of men and women just to mix socially in public places. And then obviously in 2018, they lifted the ban on women driving, which was, you know, something that for decades had sort of been the uh, primary symbol of, um, you know, how strict Saudi restrictions on women were and just, uh, you know, basically how oppressed women were in the kingdom. And they they got rid of it. And so, you know, I think that MBS does deserve a lot of credit for really pushing these things through because you used to always hear that, you know, if anybody were to try these things, the clerics would push back and the conservatives would rise up and he managed to pull it off. And I think that, you know, life inside the kingdom will be a very different place for young people than it than it was before. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is that the, the, the biggest thing that is missing from all of MBS's proposed reforms is any kind of political reform. I mean, he's talked about social reform. He's talked about economic reform. But political reform is just something that he's not interested in. He's never talked about democracy. He's never talked about trying to find ways for citizens to play a greater role in choosing who represents them or choosing how they're governed. This is not what he's interested in. I mean, he's very much an autocrat. He wants to have the power. He doesn't want there to be a lot of checks and balances on what he does. He doesn't want people to criticize him. He wants to get credit for the things that happen. And so while we have this kind of dramatic social opening going on, you also have a, a, a quite strict authoritarian crackdown. You have a number of waves of arrests of different sort of sectors of society. You know, you have uh, you know intellectuals, uh, religious clerics of various stripes. Then you have you know a whole round of women's rights activists, both women and men, who get arrested. And um, you know, there's just been this whole wave of people who sort of end up in prison. Some of them are put on trial. Some of them are not. Some of them are released and sort of kept under either house arrest or banned from traveling abroad. And you know, making it very clear to everybody that, you know, you you need to be on board with this program or you need to keep your mouth shut. At the same time, there's kind of an electronic aspect to the authoritarianism, both in terms of manipulation of social media and in terms of hacking, going after people's devices and figuring out, you know, getting into dissidents' phones so you can figure out who they're talking to. And so on that on that side, it sort of gets very nasty. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. 
It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. You talk a lot about how MBS weaponizes the internet in his favor. Saudis are very online and he, him and his deputies sort of figure that out and develop like you, you called an offensive information operation within the kingdom. Talk a little bit about that. So uh, let's use the example of Twitter. So, you know, in the United States, some people are on Twitter, some people aren't, you know, it's, it's just kind of part of the social media universe. You know, some people prefer Facebook, some people are on Instagram, you know, Twitter's kind of one of the things that some people are into. And in Saudi Arabia, Twitter, Twitter is absolutely central. I mean, everybody seems to be on Twitter. Some people have multiple Twitter accounts and Saudis, partly because social life has been kind of traditionally so constricted. Online life is incredibly active. People spend a huge amount of time on their phones. They're some of the world's highest consumers of YouTube. They're massive users of Twitter. And so Twitter is just very much this, this outlet for many Saudis to the rest of the world. It's how they get their news. It's how they understand what's happening in the kingdom. It's how they communicate with each other. And, 
And there was this whole sense when Twitter started spreading in Saudi Arabia, there were a number of articles written talking about how this was going to democratize information, you know, that you couldn't hide information anymore because people would find out about it on Twitter. And, and um, there was kind of this optimism and that turns out sort of looking back to have been very ill-founded because I think MBS and his deputies, they just basically realized that it wasn't that hard to manipulate this stuff. You know, there was a combination of, you know, sort of using bot campaigns. They, they, they basically realized that if there was a conversation going on that they didn't like, it didn't really take very many accounts to get involved with it to change the direction of the conversation. So they would either get in there and they would sort of muddy the waters by providing sort of alternative information that may not be exactly true, but that sort of muddied the waters of what, what was going on in the conversation. Sometimes they would report content that they didn't like and get it taken down. And, you know, maybe Twitter would evaluate it and find that it wasn't actually offensive, but by then the wave had passed. Um, they went after a lot of people in real life. They had a whole program where they unmasked people who had anonymous accounts and a number of them were arrested and ended up sort of on trial or in jail or, and so it became very clear over time, you know, there was a period when we used to watch Saudi Twitter very closely to find out what Saudis were thinking and, you know, and, and that is almost over now. I mean, there's still, you know, there's still good information on there and there's still many Saudis who have public profiles that they use to share information, but, but they did make it very clear from the top that, you know, the rules were if you, if you agree with Mohammed bin Salman and if you agree with the reforms, then you can praise and you can talk and you can gush about how wonderful everything is. But if you're unhappy, you better just be quiet about it or, you know, we're going to come for you. And so in terms of the, the U.S.-Saudi relationship, so MBS and other Saudis did not get along particularly well with the Obama administration, but things seem to have been different with President Trump. And sort of the defining tie in the U.S.-Saudi relationship is this connection between Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner, who's President's son-in-law and his senior advisor. Talk a little bit about that. That The first meeting you talk about between Kushner and the Saudis becomes clear Kushner does, does not know very much at all about Saudi Arabia. How does that evolve into sort of the linchpin of U.S.-Middle East relationships? Well, I think it's one of the more remarkable things that that the Saudis did, and I think it was kind of a, it was a profound success for MBS and, and quite surprising. I think in 2016, you know, the Saudis, like many people, expected that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president of the United States, and they knew her, and they, you know, from her time as Secretary of State, and I think they just assumed, okay, she'll be the next president, and we'll deal with her, and then all of a sudden, Donald Trump wins, and there's this sort of panic moment where they say, you know, this guy has a record of saying pretty nasty things about Muslims and saying some pretty nasty things specifically about us, including during the campaign. And what are we going to do? Like, we need to be close to the White House because it's hugely important for our security. And so they put together a delegation and send them to the East Coast and they go and basically to do a fact-finding mission about this incoming administration and find out who it, you know, who are these people and how do we deal with them? They interview a number of Trump's uh, business associates. They interview a bunch of his political associates. They meet with Jared Kushner. And the sort of the profile that they come back with is, I think, was very accurate and very smart. They said, you know, these people are not traditional politicians. They're deal makers. They're business people. They're interested in the bottom line. They don't really know very much about the Middle East. They certainly don't, want, don't know much about Saudi Arabia. What they do know about in the Middle East is Israel, which is what they really care about. And, um, and then they craft their approach to this administration based on that. And it ends up being this wild success, so much so that Donald Trump, after his inauguration, decides that the first foreign trip of his presidency is not going to be to one of the U.S. historic allies. He's not going to go to the U.K. or to, you know, which is what I think probably every previous American president had done. He makes his first foreign trip to Saudi Arabia and the Saudis are just overjoyed and they they make it more than just a bilateral visit. They decide to invite all these heads of state from across the Islamic world, they turn it into this gigantic summit. And, and that really lays the groundwork for this relationship between the Trump administration and, and Mohammed bin Salman. And sort of going on underneath that is the relationship with Jared Kushner. Kushner meets MBS. And, you know, the, 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 strangely, they actually have quite a lot in common. I mean, they're both, you know, young men who have great ambitions, who have been given tremendous power by older relatives and who basically don't feel like they should be confined by the traditional ways of doing things. They want to do things differently and they want to see if they can get different results than their elders. And so, you know, they form this relationship and they communicate a lot on WhatsApp and other messaging programs. And 
Jared Kushner sometimes travels to Saudi Arabia and meets with MBS out in the desert. And, you know, when I was working on this book and doing interviews in Washington, there was a lot of frustration and people from other parts of the government that said, yeah, we don't really know what they talk about. I mean, if a U.S. diplomat goes and meets with the crown prince or meets with other senior Saudi officials, that diplomat is going to come back and write a cable and he or she's going to say, well, here's what we talked about and here was what we came away with. And and this didn't always happen with the Kushner meetings. And so there was always this kind of question mark in the rest of government about what are these guys talking about? And so the sort of flashpoint moment in Saudi relationships with the entire world is the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. What was Khashoggi's relationship with the kingdom and then what ended up happening to him? So Jamal Khashoggi, you know, he became very known in the West after he showed up in Washington and actually after he was killed. But, you know, by then he was in his late 50s and and he had spent many, many decades as part of the Saudi establishment. I mean, for almost all of his career, he had been a Saudi journalist who was close to the powers that be. I mean, this is somebody who worked for Saudi newspapers, somebody who edited Saudi newspapers, somebody who worked as an advisor, both officially and unofficially for a number of Saudi princes. You know, he met with the kings. He, And he, he was very much just somebody, you know, you can basically any diplomat or any researcher or any journalist that you meet who worked on Saudi Arabia over the last 20 years, they all knew Jamal Khashoggi because he was very, he was cordial, he spoke English, he was accessible, and he was willing to talk. And a lot of us counted on him to sort of figure out what the Saudis were up to because, you know, as you said before, it can be a very opaque place. And when I started covering Saudi Arabia in 2013, Jamal was incredibly useful. You know, something would happen. There would be an announcement from the Saudi government. We don't understand what's going on. And I would call him. He would answer his phone. He would say, oh, yes, I think that they're worried about this. And I think the king wants to do this. And, you know, it was very, very useful. And that was the role that he played and played very successfully for many, many years. And the the breakdown between him and Mohammed bin Salman actually was a result of Donald Trump. The original sort of problem between them was because of Donald Trump. When Trump wins the election, the Saudis sort of go in this process that I talked about of trying to figure out how do we how do we approach this administration and how do we develop a relationship with them. Jamal doesn't really go along with the program. He criticizes Trump for saying a lot of nasty things about Muslims. He's quite critical of Trump's style on Twitter. He um, he writes quite a you know he writes a column at the time basically addressing the Saudis and saying you know we shouldn't be scared of Donald Trump but we need to prepare for him because he could be a very different kind of American leader than we're used to. He speaks about Donald Trump at a number of public events and suddenly gets a call from the royal court saying you know you're done you've got to you've got to shut up. They ban him from social media. They ban him from going on television talking to anybody. They ban him from publishing articles and so he goes into this period of sort of hibernation where he's just silent. And, uh, you know, a number of people who are used to seeing Jamal sort of out and talking about things, wonder what's going on. He eventually gets a warning that, you know, he could end up being banned from leaving the kingdom or he could get arrested. And so he packs up and leaves, spends a little time in Europe and then lands in Washington, D.C., where he had lived previously and uh, starts setting up a new life. Soon gets an offer to start, you know, writing columns for the Washington Post and, uh, you know, writes a number of columns that are very critical of MBS. And that sort of takes us to the story that I think your your listeners are probably familiar with. So just talk briefly about what what ended up happening to Khashoggi. So once Jamal starts writing for the Washington Post, he becomes a, he becomes probably the most prominent Saudi critic of Mohammed bin Salman. He writes uh, quite positively about a number of the social reforms. These are things that even Jamal himself had been calling for for a, quite a long time in his own writings. But he's very critical of the authoritarian aspect of what MBS is doing. He, he talks a lot about just plain freedom of expression and says, you know, we used to be able to talk about government policy. And if there were things that we didn't like, we could criticize it. And now we can't do that anymore. When the arrest campaigns begin, that hits him very hard because a number of his friends are arrested. A number of uh, people that he was very close to end up in jail. And so he writes about that. And he's just kind of interacting from Washington with what MBS is doing. MBS will announce some new initiative and Jamal will kind of write a critique of it in the Washington Post. And this makes the Saudis very angry, not just because he's a dissident. There are plenty of other Saudi dissidents out there. But I think it was much more the fact that Jamal had been part of the establishment. He had been inside the house. And now here he was sitting, you know, not only abroad, but in Washington, D.C., writing for the Washington Post, you know, for a predominantly American audience. And, uh, 
criticizing the crown prince. And I think they just saw that as a profound betrayal. And so then, you know, Jamal is trying to move on with his life. He, you know, meets a younger Turkish woman and falls in love, decides he wants to get married. In order to get married in, in Turkey, he needs to have proof that he, his last, uh, that he was divorced from his previous wife. So he goes to the Saudi consulate to get it. They're surprised to see him and they say, well, come back in a few days and we'll have your paper ready. And he does exactly that. And he walks into the consulate and he never comes out. Uh, and it comes out over the next few weeks through basically leaks from the Turks that he had been confronted by a team of Saudi agents who flew in specifically to meet him and they had killed him and then dismembered his body and packed him up and somehow made his body disappear. And to this day, we don't know where it is. And how does how does the U.S. respond to all this? Among other things you included, you mentioned that they're in constant communication with the Saudis after this. And there's some curious details about their handling of even the call transcripts with the Saudis. Well, specifically the White House. I mean, the U.S., there's a lot of anger in many parts of the U.S. government. And this had been building. You know, I think that this, the people in the CIA had been angry about his treatment of the previous crown prince, who was considered a very close ally of the CIA and counterterrorism operations. A lot of people in the State Department had been frustrated with a number of things that he had done. And I think the general authoritarianism of his of his rise. A lot of people in the Pentagon were frustrated with the Yemen war and felt that, you know, we gave them all these weapons and we've had all these training programs and here they are killing all these civilians and it looks terrible for us. And so you'd had a lot of frustration with him growing in parts of the U.S. government. But this is really when, you know, the relationship that he had developed with Kushner and, and with Donald Trump kicks in and that they, they end up basically providing him with a firewall that, um, you know, they talk very frequently and Donald Trump speaks frequently about Khashoggi and I have a section in the book where he confronts them on the phone and basically, you know, speaking to MBS and the King and says, you know, did you guys know about this? Did you order this? What's the story with this bone saw? You know, he tells them, I've been in a lot of hard negotiations, but I've never needed a bone saw. Very hard on them. And, and they never really give him any information. They never acknowledge anything. And, you know, the big sort of quote that brings it to the end is, you know, Trump put out a famous statement saying, I don't know if he ordered it. Maybe he did and maybe he didn't. But it doesn't really matter anyway, because Saudi Arabia is so important to us, basically as an ally in the Middle East and as a purchaser of American weapons that we don't really need to punish them for this. And, you know, that I think for a lot of people just showed the extent that the Trump administration would go to to protect this relationship. And so talk talk a little bit about your experience reporting on the book. So you are also a journalist. Was it easy getting people to talk to you? Was it easy to get visas? And how do you feel like the Saudis took to your reporting on the country? Well, it sort of, it changed over time. I began going to Saudi Arabia in 2013 under the previous king, King Abdullah. And then it was, it was difficult to get visas, but it wasn't particularly difficult to work. I mean, it's always a bit of a closed society. It was hard to get visas. I mean, I would get a seven day single entry visa. I would go for seven days and then I would leave. And then maybe I would get a two week visa. And, and it, and it did get better over time, partly you know, when MBS came in, it did get better. I think that, you know, one of the talking points of the MBS era was openness and transparency. And for a while, that did extend to foreign journalists. They did make it easier. And I was able to get some longer term visas and so that I could kind of come and go. And, and I think it was the amount of time that I spent there even before MBS really had come to power. I mean, I got to know a lot of people. I worked on a lot of different subjects. I did, certainly I did some stories that they didn't like, but I also did many stories that the Saudis really did like. So that kind of gave me a, you know, a wide network of contacts that I could come to later on when I really started focusing on him. And, you know, then I think it was sort of the turning point would have been 2016, 2017, when, you know, we started writing about him, I think, a little bit more aggressively than they had expected. You know, we, a colleague, uh, my, my colleague Mark Mazzetti and I broke the story of him, you know, spending about a half a billion dollars on a yacht. They were not very happy about that. You know, and then I think the way that we covered Hariri, the way that we covered the Ritz, they were definitely not happy about that. I think they felt that we were being much too aggressive on him and we were not giving him enough credit for the things that he was doing inside the country. And so, you know, my access kind of started gradually drying up. And then by the time I really got down to working on the book, I was having a hard time getting into the country. And But I had a good network of contacts, either people that I could talk to remotely because, I, you know, they knew me and trusted me that I would protect them if I needed to. And then other people who were abroad, you know, there's a whole network of people around the region who either have 
you know, who have close links to various parts of the Saudi royal family. And so, you know, I'd met a number of these people along the way as well. And so I was able to meet people and, you know, in Lebanon and Jordan, some people in London and was able to sort of go back to those contacts. And it became quite clear. I mean, by the time the Saudis knew that I was working on a book, the relationship was pretty bad and they made it pretty clear. They just didn't want to have anything to do with it. They were going to keep it at arm's length and, you know, they were not going to facilitate in any way. Yeah. And so to end with one of the, maybe the biggest takeaway for me from the book was sort of how aggressive MBS is. He tells, is this quote where he tells an advisor, you know, that he takes no half measures. How do you go about thinking about what he might do next or whether there's any chance of him sort of doing away with that aggressive impulse and evolving into a partner that a country like the United States would be more eager to embrace? Well, I think the main thing to remember is that he's still very young. I mean, he's now 34 years old and he could be around for a very long time. I mean, if his fa you know, when his father passes away, most people expect that he will then become the king unless something kind of extraordinary happens. And if he lives to be as old as his father, he'll be in power until sometime in the 2060s. So, you know, we're, we're still pretty early in what could be a very, very long era of MBS in the Middle East. And so I'm a bit, you know, I, 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 it's something I thought a lot about in the book. I mean, it's a bit risky to do a book about somebody who's only 34 years old and who could be around for many more decades. So I tried to focus very much on sort of what we know about him from this first four to five years and not sort of predict so much where he's going. And, and what I found in just talking to, you know, diplomats, business people, you know, other people engaged with Saudi Arabia, is there's just kind of this question that everybody has, you know, recognizing how young he is. But there's this question of, you know, is he learning from these incidents? Is he learning from his mistakes? You know, does he look at, you know, the murder of Khashoggi? Does he look at the Yemen war and he say, wow, we really did that wrong. And that really, that really costs us a lot in terms of either our international credibility or, you know, I want to do it different next time. And, you know, is there a possibility that, you know, I think the, the question is really, is what we've seen so far, you know, does it spring from deep in his personality? And if that's the case, then I think we're, you know, we're on the way for a lot of turbulence in the region. You know, there's, there's also a possibility that he could be learning from these and that he could mature into, uh, you know, a wiser monarch who's going to uh, try to, uh, you know, perhaps avoid some of these more rash decisions. And we just don't know. I mean, he's 34 years old. We'll have to wait and see how it goes. And that is all the time we have. Ben Hubbard, thank you so much. The book is MBS. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Ben Hubbard for coming on the show. The podcast is produced by Jen Patiahal, and your music is performed by Sophia Yan. Please take a minute to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and share us on Twitter. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.